You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. Hello and welcome back to members of the jury. I appreciate you all for tuning in and responding to your notice to show up for jury duty. Today we are going to take a look at some of the current policies that are in place regarding our prison system. The mass incarceration problem has gotten so bad that our government has had to start outsourcing their facilities to private entities. And that's because there's an estimated to be over 2 million people currently in custody. To make matters worse, these prisons implement policies with the sole purpose of increasing their profits off of the prisoners. Today, we're going to highlight some of the strategies and methods that are used to do this, but we're going to propose some solutions and highlight examples of alternatives too. Joining me on today's show is civil rights plaintiff attorney and former deputy public defender, Zach Davinall. Zach, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Hello there, members of the jury. Like you said, my name's Zach. I've been in prisons and jails all up and down California and all throughout the South. I helped write the SB 1437 bill here in California. I'm a firm believer in evidence-based practices and how we deal with the criminal justice system. I'm excited to talk today. Well, Zach, thanks so much for joining us today. We're really excited to get inside your head and your expertise and uh, to take this reform issue to the box. Now, I want to start off by saying that those who are incarcerated, they're still humans. Let me repeat that. Those who are incarcerated are still humans. They're still someone's mother, father, daughter, son, or even cousin. And a large majority of those incarcerated are there because they made a bad decision, not because they're bad people. And as a society, we should be focusing more on rehabilitation than strictly on punishment. We need to reform our policies. The first one I want to discuss is the fact that prisoners and their family members are charged outrageous costs for simple phone calls and other forms of communications. Zach, what do you know about this and what kind of problems that it creates? Right. Well, I mean, it, it comes from this, I think, uniquely American idea that um, putting the free market in any situation is going to end up better. Well, we know that's not true in this case, right? Because you can walk into a jail or prison and see advertisements for these family members who oftentimes are already poor, having had to pay out bail money or not pay out bail money or barely can afford rent in some circumstances, being asked to pay money to see their father, their brother, their sister right? Or any, any number of relations. And so I think, you know, it, it puts this weird perverse situation where we've said, it's okay. It's okay to profit off of desperation of someone wanting to speak to someone and especially in jail, right? We're, we're dealing with serious isolation, serious danger for these people. And most of the time, extreme danger to their mental health. And one of the only ways that you can deal with situations like that is through familial connections. 
and they're being deprived of this because they can't afford it. And I, I think that's something that unless you have someone that's in that situation, you're not going to be aware of the skyrocketing prices that exist for that medium. You know, most of us who are not incarcerated obviously have some kind of cell phone plan. And I think, you know, out there, there are plans that you can get unlimited talk and text for as low as $50. But when you, first and foremost, when you look at to the prison phone plans, there's no such thing as unlimited. There's no such thing as an unlimited plan. And the prices are way, way higher. Right. You know, I was doing some research and I think I calculated about the average cost of a phone call for someone who was currently in custody was about $17 for a 15-minute call. And we know that the prisoner often isn't the person paying for those phone calls. It's the family members, it's the loved ones, it's the support system. And after a while, when your pockets start to bleed dry for phone calls and you have to start worrying about your own livelihood... Well, we know those phone calls are going to stop. And when the phone calls stop, that helps, that goes exactly to what you were saying, higher levels of stress, isolation, recidivism. And so it's so important to be able to keep those in custody in contact with their family and their loved ones, because the goal is to get them out someday and to make them a better human in society, right? Right. And I think additionally, nobody ever plans to go to jail or prison. And well, I will say sometimes people know when they're going to go in, right? If they're lucky, if they're lucky, they know when they're going in. But I would say easily 98% of your clients aren't going to know when they're going in. So they end up in this situation where they are overnight, sometimes there for two years, right? And they've been plucked up by officers or whomever into this isolated situation. And now we're asking them to pay to call their boss to make sure that they know they're going to be gone, right? Unless they want to lose their, unless we want them to lose their job, right? Uh, What about their apartment? What if they're going to have to call their landlord and say, sorry, I can't come deliver that check in person today, which we know happens a lot with low-income housing. It requires in-person checks because I'm in jail, right? Because I had an old warrant for a uh, suspended license, Like these people are going in flash incarcerations or even just being popped in when they're not expecting it. We're isolating them and asking them, oh, well, you want to make sure that you have a job on the outside. You want to make sure you communicated to family members to make sure that you're not dead. You have to pay for that. You have to pay for that. And if you don't have money in your wallet, how are you going to add that on the book? Or even if you do have money on the wallets by by making the prices so high, especially for the phone calls, you know, you anybody who's in custody, especially those pre-trial who, you know, should have that presumption of innocence, well, now they're being deprived of some common basic rights or at a cost. And then they have to decide, well, I have X amount of dollars on my books, but I have to potentially hire a lawyer. I want to look at bail. I want to be able to clean myself while I'm being housed pre-detention because, you know, our basic things of toiletries aren't provided. And we'll get to that a little later when we get into the commissary section of today's show. But they're all interrelated because it's the lack of money and accessible to the inmates. At the same time, the 
increased costs in any sense of it in the living of being in custody, whether it's the phone calls or anything in the commissary. And so what are some of the ways that you know of that have been happening around the country that can been helpful in solving this issue as far as communications with in custodies and their family where it's not breaking the banks of everybody involved? Well, we know for a fact that once profit isn't the goal, um, you can see reduced rates. So even if, say, it is run by a corporation that needs to make some money, I can guarantee you $17 for a 15-minute phone call is making them easily $15 of profit, right? So we know when the, the incentive, or at least there's controls on that market, it re-incentivizes making sure the person can communicate. So that profit, even if we're going to give in some profit to these corporations, right, can be maximized, or a better word for that would be optimized. So instead of what, if $5 a minute, $10 a minute, it can be what you would pay on the outside, which is what, 10 cents a minute it used to be, I think. You know, like realistic uh, profits and realistic sort of payments Um, at market value, instead of taking advantage of this closed market where, let's be frank, it's a monopoly, right? We believe in corporations and having a free market, but it's a monopoly, right? Because there's only one person who's allowed to have access to hooking up those phones. And that's the company that runs the jail. So, you know, adding more free market in there could resolve it if you're going to go that way or more controls or even taking it over, right? It does not cost the government that much to put in phones. We know the clerks have their phones covered. We know the deputies have their phone co- phone calls covered in there. We know the PDs are covering the phone costs for clients. And so uh, there, there's a bunch of ways you can solve this. Well, you touched on a good point too, though, that you can still have it so that these private entities make money. You're just in impacting the level or degree of margin in which they're profiting off of. I mean, I think if you look up the two, or if you look up, you know, prison phone calls, the the research will show that I think that 70% of all phone calls by incarcerated people come from one of two companies. And so you can imagine the amount of volume that those companies are getting and the kind of margins that they're profiting off of as of now with the $17 more than a dollar per minute phone call you know that's more than collect calls ever were and so it just doesn't make sense why we're adding that extra layer of penalty onto these punishments when the whole purpose of our system is to rehabilitate them and how our society can expect that to happen when we cut them off at the knees is just never makes sense to me and so i think you should i think more cities in or in counties or municipalities need to look at places like San Francisco and New York, where there are these big cities who have higher number of incarcerated people just because of their size, who have been able to enter into contracts with these private companies where there's winners all around. It's allowing the inmates more access to their to the phone time and to their loved ones where the companies are entering into the contract because they still see it as a profitable business and contract for them. So how do you think that we can take those places like San Francisco and New York and start getting them implemented in other places across the country? 
I mean, we have precedent for this, right? Bell Technologies, Bell Labs used to be the phone company. There was about two of them in the country. And then we took serious the idea of free market, not just profit, but the idea of free market. And we busted it up. I mean, anyone can recall from the 70s, although some of us weren't bored yet, but the, the history books show, you know, there's precedent for breaking up these monopolies and localizing it. So even if, right, the federal government isn't going to go in there and mon uh, monopoly bust, which it has the full power to because these corporations are dealing in interstate commerce, right? Even if the federal government isn't willing to do that, these local municipalities that are contracting for these services don't have to contract with the national businesses. We know it's the same thing with your internet provider, right? Like think you can either choose AT&T or you can choose a local service, right? And that's what's great about the option for municipalities. If they're doing this, not only are they making sure that they're the people they're responsible for, these people who are in jail, right? Their literal wards um, are better protected for, have better options for communication, but they're also enriching their local economies because they're supporting local businesses that have the opportunity to do these connections and can do it more efficiently and perhaps with more of an eye for justice or um, support for the person who's using their services and less about profit nationally or the stock market. You know, I think that obviously in 2021, as the phone and ability to communicate is so accessible to everyday people, that this problem has been so easily overlooked. Because when you have to communicate with those incarcerated, there's a few facilities that have modern technology and allow for Skype calls or FaceTime, what have you. But a lot of the times it's good old fashioned phone calls and you know the timing that the incarcerated individual gets to access their phone doesn't always match up with the time that the person that they're trying to call on top of the price problem and so you know i think that's just one place where prisons need to reform their policy with regard to phone calls and helping those who are incarcerated just get better access to their family because I think that we all know that it could be super beneficial on many different levels in, into the problem, into the systems that arise. So let's talk about some of the other issues, because I want to say that when I was looking up some of my research, that the total number of money that the prison profited from their commissary was more than that of the phone calls. Why do you think that that would be? I mean, because they've monetized basic necessities, right? So for in women's prisons, this can be feminine hygiene products, right? Like those aren't guaranteed to you in all circumstances, right? Like, uh, it, and it expands the gambit, right? Like what if you want a toothbrush that isn't the one they provided to you? Or what if the one they use is too firm on your gums because you have diabetes and it makes you have soft gums? Or what if... Um, you want to shave, right? Um, and so you need a razor, you need shaving cream. That's not provided in a lot of these for-profit places. You have to pay money for that or even basic food, right? Like the food, which nobody's going to jail for the menu, right? Not, right. It's not nutritional, nutritionally great. Um, and it, it, it's just, I mean, outside of taste, right? And so these people go to commissary to, to survive, 
And so, of course, you're going to make more money because they're literally surviving off of it. Um, and, and, you know, I think part of me the through with both of these markets, the telephone market and the commissary market, is it creates this perverse incentive to have more crime in the jails, right? You're going to have people seeking in cell phones so they can communicate. You're going to have people sneaking in other sorts of basic goods to these people committing quote unquote crimes, right? By sneaking them in because you haven't paid for them um, and because you can't pay for them. That's a fantastic point because then you also started to get into stealing theft of inmates' codes or bullying, quite frankly, to get them to buy you stuff from the commissary. It just can create a really nasty, you know, we already have the haves and the have-nots on the outside and then you put that under a microscope inside of a place that you know is supposed to have everybody kind of on the same equal playing field as it relates to you know rehabilitation and a sense of, of punishment for sure but there shouldn't be haves and have nots inside the jail and right. the phone system and the commissary system they 100% go towards that then subculture of crime that, that occur within the prison right and it actually creates markets like we know people are just trading in uh, money in jail. You know, they can switch money between their books in some instances, but it creates, I remember in the federal prisons down in the South, it was all about stamps. The federal stamp was, became their paper dollar, right? And so like you're saying, it created this weird capitalistic environment where favors, favors or items were exchanged for stamps or in some places it's cigarettes right which is a more popular idea the cigarette uh, being money and so it, it creates this weird idea and competition and incentive to instead of focus on what rehabilitation and getting better in jail or focusing on your case or learning the law if, if you're lucky enough to have a law library in your jail you, you're instead competing in a market, over basic goods, which at a base level doesn't, it shouldn't sit well, right? Like right. if it sits well with you, you are the person watching Aladdin steal that bread to feed the kids. And instead you were like, no, 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 I'm on the guard side. I'm on the guard side. He, they were the ones in the right. Spoiler alert, they side with Jafar. That should be enough evidence <laughs> for you. But no, you're, re you're really over here saying, no, 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 Aladdin shouldn't have stolen because that's against the rules, even if it was to feed children or feed himself. And I think you've highlighted, I think, two primary issues that exist within the commissary system. And that's one, the, the food system and where I think most people think of the concept of commissary applies to. And the other element being the hygiene route where most people don't realize that they actually have to pay for basic, you know, toiletry needs of someone who's being in jail. What is it about the food? Because we know it's not the taste, but is there anything about like the timing of it that you think impacts the need for commissary? Yeah. So we know that jails function on this time slot system, right? Like you don't just get to walk about jail all day, every day, and people aren't locked in jail every day, every day, all day, every day. They have slots where they're fed, right? So if that slot lines up with other things, oftentimes you're left with that. Um, or if you're lucky enough to get it, it's a sack lunch that may not comply with your dietary needs. So, so I mean, that that's the timing aspect is then they're left in the out, right? Or what if there's someone with 
like diabetic health needs. A, hopefully they're lucky enough to be getting their insulin in jail, which we know isn't necessarily the truth. And B, you have to keep a solid level of blood sugars. Otherwise, it could literally kill you. Um, and blood sugar spikes or blood sugar dips, um, hypo or hyperglycemia, doesn't work on a standard clock, right? So you could be sitting in your bunk at 10 p.m. past mealtime and you have a hypoglycemic attack. So you, your blood sugar drops. What are you going to do? What are you going to do if it's outside hours? Are you just going to go into, you know, a diabetic coma? Because that's your option if you don't have money. Hopefully you have a snack on hand. Hopefully you have something. Uh, and in Arkansas, they would use honey buns. Honey buns were all the rage, right? So hopefully you have a honey bun under your pillow for you to make sure that you don't die. And that's a good point too, though, because I, I don't think most people realize that commissary isn't an on-call thing. It happens a couple times a week. You got to place an order and then it's delivered to you. So you almost have to even plan ahead with your commissary. It's not that it's some 24-7 mini mart that, you know, you're in your cell at 10 p.m. You need this sugar rush where you can be like, well, I do have money. I can buy this item. It's not that simple either. So the timing of even access to the commissary plays a huge role in a lot of what you're saying too. Right, right. And then, I mean, the, and this just makes me think, you know, they're storing these goods and you're already in a place where you are food unstable, necessity unstable, and then you're asked to hoard it for a week, a week at a time or days at a time in a place where you are taught that the people around you are going to steal. Right? You don't go into jail and think everyone's my friend. If you do, you're going to get in trouble, right? But you're in a situation where not only now are you being asked to hoard the goods that could in some situations mean the difference between you looking courtroom appropriate or you actually surviving through a hypoglycemic attack, now you're asked to protect it from the person that's around you, right? And I don't want to perpetuate this idea that prisoners in, in jail are inherently violent because that's not at all the case. And most of the time they get along pretty well. Um, and that's not really an issue. But regardless, every single person is on edge, right? And is protecting and hyper-protective. So it, it adds an additional incentive to create high tension, high emotion, because they're hoarding or trying to protect their food. Well, and they also don't have pantries and cabinets and things of these natures where they can store their food and so it's dangling in the face again going back to the have and have nots like that just over time can create a level of tension i think i want to pivot to an aspect of commissary that also is not on the forefront and that's the component of people thinking that well, the prisoners have money, they can pay for it themselves, or they get this money on the books. What would you say to that notion with regard to prisoners, prisoner labor and being able to work for their commissary? Right. Well, some of this is you have to understand where the idea of prison labor comes from, right? So we have the 13th Amendment comes in and says, you can't be forced into labor except for, and then they have the clause, and they have the clause that is duly incarcerated or duly convicted or duly incarcerated after a criminal conviction, I'm pretty sure is what the clause says. So it says you can't be forced into labor except for that. What has happened because of that 
is it's created a carve out where technically under the law, prisons and jails don't have to pay you anything for the labor you use or do, or the services you provide, right? You could be out there. And I promise you, when I was in Arkansas, I saw black folks, black incarcerated people out in the field with white guards with shotguns on horses on the back. And this was 2016, right? So it's still happening every day. These people are out in the fields doing this labor, right? Very not different from prior to the 13th Amendment, but now they're doing it in jails and jails aren't required to pay. So there is no such thing as an established minimum wage. In Arkansas, it, I think it was about seven cents an hour. You're lucky if in some cases you get up to 14 cents an hour or you work up to a specialized job or a trustee job where you get paid anything close to a dollar, right? Like these people aren't making money. They're making scraps because again, it's a system that thrives off profit and selling itself and selling that labor, not in making sure these people are rehabilitated. And then I, and I think I want to just touch very briefly on the idea that, oh, well, well, they're in jail, so they shouldn't be able to make a bunch of money, right? Or this is, you know, this is their punishment in a way. That's taking outside of the context of just jail being hell in itself. I invite anyone who believes that way to go in jail and tell me that's a pleasant experience, period. But secondarily, just because you're in jail does not mean you've been convicted of a crime, right? I'm sure we've said it a couple of times now, but there's people in there that are completely innocent. I've taken cases to trial where the person was detained the entire way through and then at trial was found not guilty, acquitted on all charges, and then in that moment was released, right? But that whole time, they were stuck in jail, not earning money, not earning anything. And if they were, they were earning 14 cents an hour, even though they're innocent. Well, that's such a crazy dynamic to think about, too, because f- taking that whole picture that you just you know, depicted was that the guy or an individual was held pre-detention, presumably because he couldn't afford bail. And the moment we say that this person is too indigent to afford bail, we then put them in a system that immediately starts profiting off of the poor person and diving them deeper into their poorness, which is not the type of system that we should have. If, you know, yes, potential people say it all the time that we have the best system, but that doesn't mean that it's the best it can be. We should always be striving to improve it. And I know definitely, I think that the American criminal justice system is one of the best in the world. So I'm too novice and naive to say that it's the best without actually experiencing all the different ones. There's definitely components. I know that the jury trial is pretty unique to America, um, which I think is an extremely crucial part of our system. But it goes to show how this is all interconnected between being poor and having to be left in jail to trying to work so that you could pay for a phone call or you could pay for an item from commissary, but at most you're paid 14 cents an hour. At at 14 cents an hour, you would have to work a part-time job to make a five-minute phone call, which I don't care what you did. That's not just, that's not humane. And that is nothing but profits. Right. It's created this idea that jail isn't about recuperation or rehabilitation. It's about profiting off a person. 
um, which we said when we passed the 13th Amendment, Amendment or the spirit of that that we believe in is that you shouldn't be able to profit off a person. A person should not be property for you to make money off of. But that's exactly what the prison complex is, right? Um, and I mean, that that's even outside of, and you know, at least they're making money now. Back in the day, and I don't know if it still happens now, but it used to be called prison lease or prisoner lease, labor, prisoner labor lease, right? And that was, a, it came right after the 13th Amendment, right? And at the end of slavery, quote unquote, end of slavery. Um, and it was this program where we were literally leasing out. So private plantations. So these, these aren't just corporations that we think of now. These were plantations because it's the 1860s, right? Um, and they are literally paying the government to purchase people that they get to use on the land for free, right? Like these people aren't being paid. Um, And so again, it's placed this weird, it comes from this idea that we can profit off people and people are there to create profit, which is not the idea of the justice system. They said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not life, liberty, and profit. Well, you know, and even in the real world, there are certain safeguards and restrictions and limitations that are put in place to specifically watch companies from profiting over people when the welfare is at stake. It feels like it, it, when it comes to those who are incarcerated, it appears that the restrictions are weaker in that regard. And... I think the solution is easy when it comes to the commissary issue or the cheap labor issue. And it's, if it's, if it's too expensive for the state to provide adequate food and hygiene to all of the individuals that are housed in their facilities, they need to start finding ways to lower that number alternatives to custody, different forms of supervision, because a lot of the individuals who are in the jails and prisons can be rehabilitated in other forms. Right, in their home. Making, having a job, paying taxes where they're worth more to the state because they've paid their taxes on their payroll, right? And we know people, once they're outside, um, have, their, have support networks, are less likely to recidivate if they have their family and friends, if they have an apartment, if they have a job, right? Like all those things they get to keep if they're out. And that's outside of, right, we know the DOJ in 2016, right around when Obama first issued his memorandum saying we're not going to do for profit federal prisons, right? When he first did that, the DOJ came out with their 2016 report that said, actually, private prisons are worse for recidivism. So you're more likely to commit a crime having gone to a private prison. They're less safe. And actually, they're more punitive, aka physically punitive, than other forms of prison. Um, and so you're exactly right in saying that if, if the state can't afford it, then find other ways. That's the beauty of American industry, right? And American thought is that there is a way to innovate instead of going down the same dark rabbit hole, or in this case, which is, I, in my firm belief, just a continuation of slavery, right? Right. Um, in certain aspects, profiting off a person. I know I know in the book, The New Jim Crow, authored by Michelle Alexander, she talks in depth about that concept. And 
is able to walk the reader through the lines of how us as American society has gone from slavery to what she would say is modern day slavery, and that is the term of the felon. And yes, the term felon can apply to more people than just blacks, for example, but the analogy she's able to make between the term felon and black is astonishing, especially when you start looking at the Jim Crow laws where it people were excluded solely because of their skin. In this case, it's solely because of the label felon. And when you look at when that 13th Amendment got enacted and then what kind of laws started to become felonies to begin with, laws that were written by white white lawmakers that targeted people of color in their activities and made them more likely to be felonious activities than not. And that's how she describes as the extension was able to continue and leave us where we are today, which I think is a an extension of the Jim Crow laws by, by that mass incarceration of predominantly the people of color. And it was really interesting that you brought up the Obama's the Obama referendum. Yeah, I think it was an order or referendum, something of that impact. It's really interesting that you brought up President Obama's executive order on private prisons because just the other day, President Biden renewed, re- brought back that executive order to have the DOJ not renew any contracts with the private prisons. What can you tell the members of the jury about that, if you know anything? I, I mean, I think it's sort of just, a, like we said, a revival of the Obama era, which was sort of overridden by Jeff Sessions. And I just want to talk about his reasoning in that one, because it's really fascinating, because his reasoning at the time of rescinding the order was that, quote unquote, it limits our ability to maintain and expand capacity of federal prisons. So it tells you, again, this person's interest is not in reducing crime right? It's not in reducing crime. It's a belief that crime will happen and we can make it more profitable. So talking about the new Biden order, right? um, It it only really affects and impacts a certain limited amount of facilities. I think in this case, 11 facilities and it's caught the most flack, um, especially in the circles. I think you and I tend to run um, because it does not include our immigrant detention facilities, which let's be clear, just because we change the name does not mean that they're different. They are the exact same shape, size, whatever, and built oftentimes by the same architects as prisons, but it does not cover these immigrant detention centers. But I mean, it does still say we are not renewing contracts with these federal facilities. We're ending contracts. We're actively ending the for-profit typical prison um, aspect, but that's federal level. Right. That's different than the state level. Right. Because this is this is totally, I mean, a step in the right direction, because by not renewing those contracts, it's not going to allow those private prisons to squeeze the prisoners for the phone calls and squeeze them for their money for the commissary. And though it can have be helpful in that impact. But we need to realize a lot of people in our space know and this is where we want to see put, you know, Biden and Kamala to the test, like, are they going to be the progressives that they said they were going to be in the criminal justice space? Because there's a lot more they can do in this regard. Like, they, what we want to see them do is, like you said, have the shutdown of these immigration facilities. We want them to, uh, he could commute 
you know, what we were talking about how because they house so many people that are not able to provide adequate care, well, he would have the ability to commute hundreds of thousands of people by clemency, releasing low level or nonviolent criminals, because then that would allow more of a budget to house people at a more adequate level of care, which should be done. I mean, the idea of our system is that we want less crime. I want to live, I don't know, personally me, maybe I hope it extends to other people, but I want to live in a crime-free world, right? That is the goal. And so until we start treating low-level nonviolent offenses, and statistically speaking, the last time I checked, per phone call to the police department, that's about 4% of reported crimes to officers. And I can't remember the conviction rate, but I'm pretty sure it much pretty much sure it tracks with that statistics that are are quote unquote violent crimes. The ones that you think, oh, well, I I don't want the rapist released. I don't want the assaulter released. I don't want the murderer released, right? Like that's probably about 4% of the population. We're talking about drugs. We're talking about low level thefts. We're talking about even some high level thefts, right? I mean, to be frank, the people that are in prison aren't these multi-billion dollar corporations that we know are stealing from people for a lot of money. It's the mother who happened to, let's say it's a mother who was ferrying her child across the border. Well, if it's done against federal law, it's illegal. You're going to federal prison, ma'am. I'm sorry you tried to give your child a good life, right? Like those people don't need to be we don't need to be protected from them. The community doesn't need to be quote unquote protected from them by isolating them in these prisons. Um, And so, you know, there's a way to handle the overpopulation of our jail system. And of course, I'm sure we all know by now the statistic, the United States incarcerates more people per capita than any other country in the nation. And in fact, more than the next five put together. So we're talking Russia, China, places we think of as naturally evil, right? The evil, quote unquote, evil access, evil empire. We incarcerate more than them and their fellow neighbors on that list. Uh, And so we need to really, and that's again, what you're saying, the hope is that this this most recent administration is now listening to the statistics. When the FBI and the DOJ and every law enforcement agency in the country is saying we need to realign our priorities about the criminal system and make sure that we're actually focusing on recidivism, not this blanket idea of the bad guy or the super criminal, that's when we have that realignment. The hope that we have with this administration as we see with this executive order is that we will get closer to that realignment or as Brian Stevenson said, the arc of the universe is towards justice, right? Moral universe is towards justice. And I think the hope with this administration and with these types of executive orders is that's where we're going by ending the idea that you can profit off people by ending the idea that by profiting, you'll be able to have capacity for this crime. You get to a better spot, which is that crime should be treated as a opportunity for the state to intervene and make sure that person is going to be okay, that the community is better off by putting that person in there and making sure they're going to be okay. Really beautifully said. I think that focus has been lost. The focus to rehabilitate the individual has been lost. I think so many systems are just thinking once you're in the system, it's just a matter of time before you reoffend. And so we might as well see you as 
a, a dollar sign because you're you no longer a soul. And I just think that that's such a harmful way of thinking, you know, being in the space that we, you know, we have been in and working with these people on an, such an individual level. I know that that's not the case. And so I really am hopeful that this administration will be able to take further steps. I mean, we still have hundreds, if not thousands of individuals in our federal penitentiaries for selling marijuana. And we also have half of the country who has legalized marijuana and are now profiting and making millions and billions of dollars off it. And how those two can exist in the same space is insane and should not happen. And if we're going to go with the latter, which I think the country is definitely moving towards, we, we need to remedy those who are no longer uh, engaged or in the criminality of the behavior that got them there in the first place. So I think descheduling or decriminalizing marijuana really needs to be the next step of this administration to show the country that they are continuing to make steps for a progressive, better criminal justice system. And, and I, I think it's important to highlight, it's not just us who are in the criminal system and a familiarity with it that are advocating for this, right? We now know that there's an expansion in healthcare for what's called harm reduction services. So that's the idea of safe needle exchanges, right? Because we know the war on drugs is the, and drug and narcotic related offenses are the bulk majority of arrests and convictions. So these harm reduction models that are being advocated by doctors, right? Like trust your doctor, trust your nurses who are out there telling you we can fix this without shoving them away in a cage and treating them like an animal. And, and actually in an area where we wouldn't even treat animals like that. I remember on Arkansas death row, the Verner unit going in there and seeing these people in cells that are, I think what, 10 by five foot, right? You wouldn't even put a dog in that. But here we are saying it's okay to put a person in there, even though the doctors tell us it's wrong, even though the scientists are telling us it's wrong, even though the political scientists who say this doesn't help us are telling it's wrong. And so if this administration is going to follow through with its promise that it has told us over and over again that we believe science, we believe statistics, we have to combat this idea of false fact or alternative fact, then they got to start listening in the criminal system too. And that means getting these people out of jails following harm reduction models and actually valuing people for people. Amen. Amen, my man. Well, I really appreciate your take on all of this. I hope that the members of the jury have really learned a lot. We've brought their attention to some major issues that are so small, but are so impactful on the criminal justice system. And before we let you go, Zach, we got to subject you to the one question that all guests on members of the jury get uh, to end the show. And it, that is, at the end of the day, what does taking it to the box mean to you? That I get to fulfill the promise that is there on that constitution. It was my favorite thing to do in closing is point. I would bring up my pocket constitution and I would point to that flag and I would say, the coolest part about where we are is the promise that I get to protect this person above all else under that flag in this constitution. And that's, I think, the beauty of it. We've been doing it for 200 years. We're getting better at it every day, every time we take it to the box. And it's a privilege. That's what it means to me. Sure is. Again, Zach, we thank you so much for coming on. We hope 
to see more changes in the law and policy, especially as it pertains to mass incarcerations. And we would love to have you back on to, you know, explain those changes and highlight more issues. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been awesome. Well, members of the jury, that's our show, and I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at members of the jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhursty at membersofthejurypod.com. The information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.